Okay, okay, we're going to get to the podcast in just one minute. But imagine I gave you the opportunity to invest in Microsoft, in Apple, in Tesla at its infancy. And now you made all this profit and it would be unbelievable. You'd be so thankful and so grateful. I believe that that day is today for Torch. Because for the next 36 hours, every donation you contribute at givetorch.net is doubled by our generous matchers, and you can come in at the ground floor. Yes, last year, over 1 million people enjoyed our podcasts. You as well, I hope. And I believe we can get to 10 million this year, but we need your help. It's only one day a year that we ask. We need your contribution. We need your partnership. We love your partnership and your friendship. Please contribute at givetorch.net, givetorch.net. Every dollar is matched. I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Matos. Matos is the ninth portion in the book of Numbers and the 42nd portion since the beginning of the Torah. There are 112 verses. 1,461 words and 5,773 letters. There are six mitzvahs in this week's parsha, two performative and four prohibitions. The parsha begins with Moshe teaching the leaders of the tribes everything that Hashem taught him. Among those things are the statutes and decrees governing oaths and vows. A person must always uphold their word. The laws pertaining to vows of a single married or divorced woman are also discussed, and the process of vow nullification are detailed. Hashem commands Moshe to take vengeance on the Midianites. Moshe chooses 1,000 troops from each tribe, a total of 12,000 troops, and they wage war, killing every Midianite male, including the five kings, Bilam, the prophet, and burning down their cities and palaces. The troops returned with the captive women, children, animals, and spoils. Moshe rebukes the officers and is angry that the women and children were spared since they were the cause of the immoral behavior of the Jewish people. Moshe commands that now all male children and any females old enough to seduce a man should be killed. Then we learn the laws of purification. Any soldier who killed or came in contact with a corpse must purify themselves with the red heifer process that we discussed a few portions ago, Parshas Chukas. Their clothes and any spoils they have must remain outside the camp for a seven-day purification period. The Jewish people are taught the laws of koshering utensils, koshering utensils. So many people think that the laws of kosher are just made up by the rabbis. They are not, in fact, made up by the rabbis. They are laws given to us in the Torah where we see when the Jewish people took the spoils from the Midianites before they were able to use their pots, their pans, or anything else made of metal or glass, they needed to put them into a mikvah to purify them and to remove them from their state of unholiness. Then when the soldiers come back with all of the spoils, when they return, Hashem commands Moshe to calculate the spoils and apportion half to the troops who fought and half to the people with a 0.2% 
that will go to Hashem, and this comes out of the troops portion. And what does it mean when it says it's going to Hashem? It goes to the Levites, the guardians of Hashem's tabernacle. So in total, they took 675,000 flock, which was divided to 337,500, of which 675 went to Hashem, to the Levites. 72,000 cattle in total were taken, divided to 36,000, and then 72 for Hashem, for the Levites. 61,000 donkeys in total, divided to 30,500, and 61 of them went to Hashem for the Levites. And 32,000 young girls divided, that is 16,000, and 32 for Hashem, for the Levites. The commanders report to Moshe that not a man of us is missing. That means there were no casualties, no injuries. And you imagine the mighty army of the Midianites were taken over by 12,000 scholars. They weren't, you know, working out in Planet Fitness. They weren't uh, muscular individuals. They're living off the mana, learning Torah all day from Moshe. But those who were committed to Hashem, as we'll see soon in the important lessons, those who were committed to the word of Hashem, Hashem send them special blessings. Hashem sends them special blessings. This wasn't only them to those who were fighting the battle. This is to us today as well. In appreciation, the troops donate all the gold vessels, anklets, bracelets, rings, earrings, and clasps that were recovered from war as a thanks to Hashem for their victory. A total of 16,750 shekels of weight of gold that equals to approximately 420 pounds of gold. Imagine how much gold they recovered. And, of course, we remember that the Midianites were a mighty, mighty empire. Enough to have five kings. It was enormous, the victory. This special offering is brought into the Ohel Moed, the Tent of Meeting, by Moshe and Elazar the Kohen. Then we have an amazing episode from Ruvain and God, the tribe of Ruvain and the tribe of God. With an extreme abundance of livestock, Ruvain and God ask permission from Moshe, Elazar, and the leaders to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River, where the soil is rich for their animals grazing. Moshe was upset by the request, asking if they would recklessly and selfishly abandon their brothers to fight for the promised land by themselves. Moshe also is concerned that this would dissuade the people, the Jewish people, from entering the land, akin to the sin of the spies, and bring the burning wrath of Hashem against Israel again. Reuven and God clarify their intentions, that they only want to build pens for their animals and cities for their children in the east of the Jordan, and then they will cross the Jordan with the entire Jewish people, and only return home after every city in the land of Israel is conquered properly. Reuven and God also declare that they will not inherit from the promised land, meaning they will get their portion on the Jordanian side, on the Transjordan side, and they won't get part of Eretz Yisrael. Moshe agrees and reiterates the terms in front of Elazar, Yoshua, and the leaders of the tribes that God and Reuven and half of Menashe suddenly show up, will inherit the land of Sichon, Og, Gilad, and many surrounding lands, all on the east of the Jordan River, only if they indeed battle with their brothers and help conquer the entire land of Israel. They all agree, and the cities are built for the children and the pens for the animal. 
And my friends, this concludes the summary of Parshas Matos. And now let's talk a little bit about some of the important lessons we can derive from this week's Parsha. So firstly, Moshe received the Torah from Sinai. This is an important thing. The way the Mishnah in Ethics of Our Fathers begins, it tells us, Moshe kibel Torah Sinai. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai. Moshe received everything from Sinai, meaning from the Almighty at Mount Sinai. Now, the Mishnah continues, and Mishnah says, and Moshe passed it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, etc., etc., and, Moshe, and everyone kept passing it down. But it doesn't say that Joshua received the entire Torah from Moses. Why? Because the best teacher in the world is God. As great as Moshe is, he isn't as powerful as God. And as great as Joshua is, he isn't as powerful as Moshe. And as great as the elders are, he, they aren't as powerful as Joshua. And we see a decline in the generation. The Torah that we have today is the exact Torah that Moshe received at Mount Sinai, but on a much lower level. And we need to understand that what Moshe is trying to do here, and why it says that Moshe taught the leaders what Hashem taught him, as much as he was able to funnel out to everyone else, is what he did. But not he's not able to present it in the same way that he received it from the Almighty. It's important for us to understand that the higher someone is, closer to Moses, closest to Mount Sinai, the more precious, the more valuable we count their Torah. They're closer to the source. It's an important thing for us to realize that the source for what it is we are learning is very, very crucial. Don't suffice with someone just saying, this is the way it is, or this is what the Torah says. Show it to me. It's something that we do regularly in our classes where we want to source everything that we talk about. Nothing should just be, well, that's the way it is because that's what the rabbi said. No. Show me a source. Everything needs to be sourced. So it's an important thing we see here. Hashem talks to Moshe. Moshe talks to the Jewish people. Everything is clearly written out in the Torah. And this week's partial, we see that it starts talking about the vows. Vows, the words that we use, are very, very important. Therefore, you'll no- notice that many people have a custom to say either not not committing to something, but rather saying, I hope to, or blineder, without a promise, I will do something such and such. It's very, very important for a person to always use caution with their words and not to, God forbid, make an oath, a promise that they don't keep. In synagogue, for example, sometimes, you know, there's an auction for Simchas Torah, opening the ark, or in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there is a special auction. Everything should be without a promise. Without a promise. I intend to, but I can't make a promise. If God forbid I don't come through with it, it is a very serious thing. Uh, there's a process also of nullification. If someone makes a vow, and this is what we do every year before Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur, we sit in front of a court of three people, three adults, and we say, hey, if I said anything that was not kept, please nullify it. And they say, mutrlach, 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 and that's the process that the, that the court, so to speak, the bet din that we assemble, nullifies those vows. Very important. Our word means something. 
Now, we have to understand a holy war. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. What do you mean Moshe commands them to kill the Midianites by the word of Hashem, obviously? We don't like war. We see war in the world, Ukraine, Russia. Oh, terrible. War is terrible. That's very nice. It's all warm and fuzzy. By the way, all of these morals, these ethics that you hear being espoused in the media, whatever, we have to understand that its source is the Torah. But it's been, I would say, bastardized. It's been, it's been destroyed through the impure views of the world. We have to realize that sometimes war is a mitzvah. War is a good thing sometimes where we eradicate evil. The Midianites were wicked, evil people. Hashem says it's a mitzvah for you to go and take vengeance of the people. They brought you to sin. They did terrible things. They brought you to idolatry. They brought you to, brought you to immorality. It's a mitzvah for you to kill them. Rid the world of the evil. So yeah, while we want to feel all that warm and fuzzy, you know, kumbaya, and we just get along, and there shall be peace in the world, the Torah very clearly teaches us that there are times that there's a mitzvah to go out and kill your enemy. And no, don't negotiate a peace agreement. We see plenty of that as well in the Torah. We see when Joshua brings the Jewish people into the land of Israel, he gives them an option. Peace or war. It's your choice. It's our promised land. You can go on your own or we're going to wage war against you. That's a peaceful solution. But we need to understand that the war was not just because they are our enemies. It's to avenge God's honor. These people were serving idolatry and were trying to infiltrate the Jewish people with their idolatry. Moshe wasn't just trying to take revenge because, look, you bothered my people, I'm going to take revenge of your people. No, 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 this has nothing to do with our people. This has to do with our creator. To take a stand for something. What are we ready to take a stand for? What are we ready to say? You know what? This is my line in the sand. And I'm not willing to let go of it. And I'm not willing to to let it pass by. I'm going to stand here firmly and declare for the name of Hashem. This is a holy war. So how does a group of rabbis, a thousand troops from each tribe, they weren't crafty uh, army people. They weren't trained soldiers. So how did they win a victory against the mighty empire of the Midianites? Our sages tell us that the verse in Exodus that says, Hashem yilachem lachem v'atem tacharishun. You go, I'll win the wars for you, Hashem says. This is not only applying to war and battle in the battlefield. Which, by the way, if you look at the Jewish people and our history and our rich 
history, you will find that no war was ever won because of might. It was won and we were victorious because of Emuna. Because we put it into the hands of Hashem. The six-day war doesn't make sense. It's that modern-day open miracle where we see the hand of Hashem. I spoke to an Air Force fighter pilot who was flying planes for Israel in the Six-Day War. And he said, he became religious after this experience. He said, I saw planes over there. I saw planes over there. And wherever I shot, they just blew up. How did the bullets get there? It was irrelevant. Every, things were just blowing up in the air. They saw open miracles. It didn't make sense. My dear friends, nothing needs to make sense in Hashem's world. When we give everything up for Hashem, Hashem says, I got this for you. I got this. You go with your unskilled troops, you'll win the war against the mighty Midianites. The Midianites probably looked at the Jewish people and they're like, you're kidding me, right? Look at our tanks. Look at our missiles. Look at our air force. Look at our troops. Look at our landmines. And they're coming with 12,000 rabbis. Who do you think is going to win the war? Hashem yilachem lachem v'atem tacharishon. Hashem will fight our wars. All we need to do is dedicate ourselves to Hashem. Hashem wins the wars, not the guns, not the bullets. Then we see an unbelievable statement in chapter 31, verse 49. It says, no man went missing. Not a single casualty. Not a single injured soldier. And our sages tell us, more importantly, not a single sinner from among the troops. You go out to war, you see a nice pretty girl. We have, we'll see this soon in Parshas Kiseitse, in middle of the book of Deuteronomy. We see what happens if you go out to war and you find the beautiful maiden and you want to marry her. You're overtaken by temptation. Not a single troop. They realized one second. We see this through, through the, this theme throughout the Parsha. We're, they're at a different state, the Jewish people. They realize we made mistakes. We're not going to fetch and complain anymore. We're, a be- we're better than that. We're going to improve. We're going to show that we are better than that. And they go out for war in the name of Hashem, and nobody falls in sin either. Don't forget, these are the same Midianite women that seduced the men in the end of Parshas Balak two weeks ago. You think they didn't attempt it again? But the troops didn't fall to anything. To stand strong. To never let go of our commitment to Hashem. That is why they brought that special offering to Hashem. We can all overcome our challenges. We can all, we, every one of us are faced with temptation. Different types of temptation. Cheat a little bit on our taxes here. Maybe look at something that's inappropriate. Maybe do something that's inappropriate. Heaven forbid. We have to recognize that Hashem is with us 
all day, every day. And if we want to invest in that relationship, we need to protect ourselves. We need to do whatever we can to distance ourselves from those temptations. Then we see the purification process that is happening through a mikvah. The mikvah purifies a person. The mikvah purifies the possessions. This is a very powerful system that is used by the Torah to teach us how one needs to purify themselves. We immerse ourselves in water. It says the gold and the silver, things that were created through heat, need to be put back into heat to purify them. And other things like, and later on actually, the glass was added to things that need to be purified, like pots and pans that we see from the Torah. But glass is not taught to us by the Torah, that the rabbis instituted that glass, if you have a new set of uh, glasses, wine glasses that you bring home, you buy them at the your local market, you want to use them for your wine, before you use them, take them to the mikvah, dip them in a mikvah, or if you have a natural source of water like a river or a lake, you can dip them in there. Before you do that, you recite a special blessing, Altavilas Kalim, on dipping the dishes. And then you bring them home. Of course, you rinse them out, you clean them up, and put them on your shelf and use them for your, for your, uh, for your wine. Especially important that anything purchased from a non-Jew or anything that was owned or made by a non-Jew must be dipped in the mikvah before using it. So why did Ruvain and God want to stay outside of Israel? Now, they didn't say, we won't enter the land of Israel. If you notice their language, they said, we'll stay here in the Jordan. They didn't say, we won't go in. They Later on, they said, we won't get the inheritance in the land of Israel. But they weren't opposed to going into Israel. They just, of course, we know that they were very, very wealthy. They had a, a tremendous livestock. And they wanted to have a place for pasture, for grazing, for their animals. But our commentaries tell us another amazing thing is that they knew already, everybody knew, that Moshe wasn't entering the land of Israel. So where is he going to be buried? He's going to be buried there. They said, we want to be with Moshe. We want to be next to where Moshe is going to be buried. Now, we know that another thing the Torah tells us, that when Moshe is buried, nobody knows where he's buried. Hashem hid it from the people. Until this very day, you will never, ever find the tombstone of Moshe. You will never find where Moshe is buried, ever. That's what the Torah says. It's important to realize that we don't make idols out of our leaders. Moshe is a very, very powerful prophet, very powerful leader of the Jewish people. But he's not God. And God wanted to ensure, our creator wanted to ensure that we don't do so. Which is why we don't know where his burial place is. Another very important thing is that we see that there were three cities of refuge. We're going to see this in next week's Torah portion. There were three cities of refuge in the land of Israel, and there were three cities of refuge in the Jordan. But there were only two and a half tribes in the Jordan and nine and a half tribes in Israel. So it doesn't make any sense. There were much fewer people in the Jordan than there were in Israel. So why are there the equal amount of cities of refuge? 
And we'll talk about what the cities of refuge were. Those were for people who mistakenly killed others. It was like a prison. Let's call it a prison. So if you notice, what we end our parsha with is that Reuven and God said, we're going to build cities for our children and we're going to build pens for our animals. And now we're going to go in with the Jewish people to the land of Israel and we're going to conquer all of the cities and then we're going to return. Our sages tell us something very, very important here. It's not a simple thing for children to grow up without a father. Their fathers are going to be away from home for a very long time. It could take a year. It could take two years, three years, four years. Children need their father. It's not enough that they just have their mother with them. Children need a father. And therefore, with when these children grow up without having a father at home for however many years it was for the Jewish people to conquer the land of Israel, that only then, Reuven, God, and the half of the tribe of Manasseh, till they come back, their children were being raised alone. What happens when children are raised alone without a father is craziness. And they were much more prone to sin. They were much more prone to murder. They were much more prone to doing things that needed them to go to the cities of refuge. It's not simple. We think that it's just like, whatever, we're just going to have, you know, a child and parents can get divorced. It has an impact on our children. We have to think about that. Yes, it's important for there to be love in a relationship. It's hard work. It's worth that hard work. So the children should have their parents together, united, and with them at all times. So that they have, like, you have a tree. When a tree starts going, falling to one of the sides, what do you do? You take a post and you pull it to the other side. And then you push the post on the other side and you pull it back to the other side, right? So that it keeps a balance. Those are the parents. You have the father, you have the mother. Those are the posts on the two sides of a child that are there to support the child to grow up straight, to grow with a, with proper morals and values and ethics and confidence. This is important. This is what we can learn from the three cities of refuge that were placed in the Jordan. Next week's part portion, Parshas Masse, we're going to see another reason why you needed three in the Jordan and three in the land of Israel. But for now, this concludes our weekly Parsha summary for the Parsha of Matos. Have a great Shabbos, my dear friends.